um, well, it's been more than five weeks because we had a break or two in between, but um, we've been going through this series called Stand for a while now. How many of you are getting to the place where toward the end of each of these series, you see that promo video and you think to yourself, oh, phew, this is the last time we have to look at that. Anybody getting there yet? Probably not. Anyway, I just, uh, I always, it seems a little redundant. Of course, I watch it a lot more than you guys do when I'm picking it out and stuff, but I, it, it always, for me, is sometimes sad to come to the end of a series, but at the same time, it's exciting because we get to move on to something else. Uh, but today, we're going to wrap it up by kind of moving back in the timeline of the book of Daniel. We have been studying um, through the stories of the book of Daniel and how they're studies of people who stood for their faith and found uh, strength in their God in a situation that was ab- absolutely reprehensible. A- as we just kind of recap a little bit, the, the Israelites had been taken captive, many of them by the, the Babylonians, and basically were forced to live in Babylon and to adopt their culture. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, tried to take the best and the brightest of Israel and indoctrinate them into their culture and make them worship their gods. There were just all of this stuff that they tried to to change about their culture. And we've seen so far how Daniel especially has stood his ground against those cultural changes and has maintained a faithful attitude and a faithful spirit toward God. Today we're going to find out what it's like to stand firm in the fire. And we're actually going to talk about uh, three other guys that were Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I did not say to bed we go. I say it so much I was afraid I was going to actually say it and then I went ahead and said it. Anyway, moving on. Um, they had what I would classify as one of the worst days probably that anybody could ever have. At least that's the way it started. How many of you are willing to testify that within the last couple weeks, maybe months, you've had a bad day? Raise your hand if you've had a bad day over the last month, couple weeks. All right. Most of us have had a bad day. Some bad days obviously are worse than others. And some people's idea of what a bad day is can be different than someone else's. Like, you know, my kids think it's a bad day if they had to get up before 10 o'clock, right? And I consider a bad day something a little more serious, like I walked out the door without my coffee. How many of you know that's a serious problem right there? That's issue. You know, a bad day for you might mean that. It might mean you forgot your coffee, or it could possibly mean that maybe you overslept and you're going to be late for work, and, you know, this is the sixth time and you're going to be in trouble. You know, a worse day might be a day that maybe you go out and your vehicle won't start because you can't afford to buy a vehicle that isn't used up and basically bummed out by everybody else before you got it. And that's not that I'm sharing from personal experience, um, but sometimes your vehicle won't start, and that's a bad day. But an even worse day, maybe you get to work and find out, like a lot of people have, that you don't even have a job anymore. It seems like more and more and more people are showing up to their place of work, and there's, you know, locks on the doors, and they have no idea what's coming, and they're completely taken by surprise. One of the worst days of my life, quite honestly, was the day that I found out my grandmother On my mom's side, my mom's mom, the one who little Hendrick gets his red hair from, um, was the day that I found out she had cancer. I was in my 20s. I was serving at the church in Defiance, Ohio, and my mom called me up and said, Grandma's got cancer, and she's going to be fighting. And in the pit of my stomach, I knew that that this wasn't going to turn out well, and I just, I struggled with that situation. And what you need to understand is in my 20s, I had never lost anyone. I had never been through a loss. I'd never had anybody that I knew really close to me die. Now, I had done funerals for other people, and I had sat with patients who went through cancer, and I'd been a part of a lot of funerals, but personally for me, I had never lost anybody who was close to me that far into my life. I was charmed. I mean, a a lot of people go through loss 
very early in their lives. But when I found out my grandma had cancer and I, I kind of knew that probably it wasn't going to go well, that was the worst day of my life. And unfortunately, that bad day was repeated two more times when I found out my mom had cancer. And of course, my mom was a health food nut, didn't want anything to do with some of this modern medicine that she had watched grandma go through. And she decided not to get treatments. And that was a bad day. Um, turned out to have been the right decision. Um, toward the end of her life, the doctor told me that she had far better quality of life than she would have had if she was on chemo, and in their opinion, it probably wouldn't have helped. But eventually, my mother passed away from cancer, and then again that day was repeated when I found out my dad had cancer. Friends, those are bad days, aren't they? Amen? Have you had those kind of bad days? You see, the problem is this. No matter who we are, and no matter what we go through in life, or no matter what path we choose in life, we will have trouble in this world. Amen? There is always going to be trouble in this world. And there's some philosophy out there, there's theologies out there that say, if you just follow Jesus, everything's going to be flowers and kittens for the rest of your life. And I've got news for you. It's not that way. In fact, Jesus himself told us that as long as we're in this fallen world, there will be trouble. John 16, I don't remember, I think I forgot to put this one in, but this is what it says. I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. This is Jesus talking. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. How many of you wish we could just edit the scripture and change that to, you'll have a few trials and sorrows? Wouldn't that be better? Don't you think? Unfortunately, that's not what the book says. And we believe that the word of God is inspired by him and we can't change it just because we don't like it. And he says there will be many trials. So know this, one thing is for sure. In this world, you will have trouble. But there's another thing that's for sure. In this world, you may have trouble, but there is a reason for that trouble. There is a reason for the struggles that we go through. And there is a reason for the trials that we go through. 1 Peter 1.7 says this, These trials show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests, purifies, tests and purifies gold. Though your faith, listen to this, is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor in the day that Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Listen, that verse tells us that there is a reason for our troubles, and that reason is to build our faith. This saying is claimed by a lot of modern preachers, but I remember hearing it when I was just a kid, so I don't know who said it first, but it's a true statement. A faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. Read that again. A faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. Listen, if you never went through hard times and never had a test of your faith, you would not know whether that faith could be trusted. But I believe that's true, and that's kind of the point that I want you to take home with you today along with some other things. Today we're going to look at a story of three young men who had a, the worst day probably in, in their lives, that had a worse day than you or I hopefully will ever have to experience, um, and, and we're going to see how they were able to stand firm in the fire. So let me just recap for a minute what the story went through, because if I read the whole story, it's going to take us too long. So let me just kind of give you um, the story in a nutshell. Again, 
that these, these three people, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are in Babylon. And they're living in Babylon during the reign of a king called Nebuchadnezzar. And I think I shared with you before that he was such an evil king that people kind of thought he might be demon-possessed or something. In fact, um, Saddam Hussein himself is said to have, have compared himself to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he claimed that he was Nebuchadnezzar reincarnate or something like that. I don't even think they believe in reincarnation, so that tells you that his faith wasn't nearly as strong as he said it was either, because that's a whole other religion that believes in that. But say this, Nebuchadnezzar was an evil king who ruled most of the world at that time. His power was without compare during the time period that he lived, and he brought all of these Jews to his kingdom and tried to indoctrinate them. Well, one day he got a little full of himself, and he decided that he was going to commission a statue that was 90 feet high. 90 feet high, and the Bible tells us nine feet wide. Just a skinny little statue, don't you think? If you do the math in your head, I'm thinking to myself, I would have thought wider. I would have thought stronger stance. I would have thought a little bit more bulky. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar had, you know, a little extra body weight, and he was trying to trim it down using the statue. I don't know. He was obviously compensating for something. But this is a man who was arrogant beyond measure, and so he commissioned the statue to be built. And he called all of his advisors, and he called all of them together, and he had them stand around the statue, and he had the, the you know, proclamation read that whenever the instruments, and there's a whole bunch of instruments mentioned in this proclamation, I'm not going to read them all to you, whenever the instruments would sound, everybody, no matter how important they thought they were in the government of, of Nebuchadnezzar, this was in the capital city, they were to bow down and worship this statue which we assume was of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It doesn't explicitly say that, but that's kind of an assumption. And so, sure enough, the instruments all sound, and everybody bows down, right, to this statue. Everybody. Well, almost everybody. There were three men who didn't stand. And we find that out, not because the story says everybody bowed but three, but because after it says everybody bowed down, you hear the story of the tattletales. How many of you had one child that was the informant? Anybody have one child that was the informant? Well, there were some people in Nebuchadnezzar's government who were the informants. They were the tattletales. And so they came up to the king. It says that they were astrologers that, that were in his court. These were soothsayers. They were people who were supposed to give the king wise advice. And so they come to the king and say, hey, king, long live the king. How many of you know that if you're going to the most angry but powerful man in the world, you should probably start with some flattery, right? Especially a guy who just built a 90-foot statue of himself, right? Long live the king. You issued a decree that everyone should bow down to this statue, and you further said in that decree that anyone who didn't bow down to that statue was going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. I would imagine the king at this point is going, I heard the degree, or the decree, <laughs> degree. I heard the decree, I wrote the decree, why are you telling me what I just had decreed? And I'm sure they got nervous, but anyway, they continued on. There are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you put in charge of Babylon. Oh boy. Now it's starting to get personal. They didn't bow. In fact, they don't just say that. Listen to what they said. They pay no attention to you. Okay, does this sound like a tattletales kind of story? They refuse to serve your gods and to not, and they refuse to worship the gold statue that you have set up. Now, if you're the king, 
And you've got advisors pointing out your mistake and pointing these men who are not obeying your edicts, you're going to get angry. And he did. Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage, calls for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and basically squares them away with the conversation. He says, is this true? Did you refuse to bow? Secondly, I'll give you one more chance. Oh, wait. King, the decree said immediately, shut up. He could say shut up. I'm not supposed to, but he could because he's the king. King, you said immediately thrown into the furnace. I'm going to give him one more chance. What does that tell us? It tells us he liked them. He had put them over all of Babylon. They were basically under him and maybe one or two other people, but they were high-ranking officials. Friends, you don't get to that position unless you have the favor of the king. He says, I'm giving him one more chance. So he looks at them and he says, I will give you one more chance. If you will bow, I will forgive this oversight. But if you do not bow, if you do not bow, then I am going to heat that furnace hotter than it has ever been heated, seven times hotter than normal is what Scripture said, and you are going in the fire. Interestingly enough, they stood their grounds. He says in this text, if you refuse, you're going to be thrown into the blazing furnace, and then he makes this statement that I think is, think is noticeable. He said, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Dennis got it. It's a question that he asked. What God will be able to rescue you from his power? Now, we know the end of the story, right? So we know what God, amen? Everybody say, what God? God. Yeah, we know what God, don't we? But he doesn't. But guess what? He's about to find out. Because they stood together in their faith. I want to read for you Daniel chapter 3 now, 16 and following. And let's kind of pick up the story where I just left off. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve, what God? The God whom we serve is able to save us and he will rescue us from your power, your majesty. Interesting how they basically talk right into his face and then end with your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. In these three short verses, they declare three qualities of standing in faith. Number one is this, and it comes from verse 16. Number one, faith obeys God rather than man. We found this in the, in the life of the Apostle Paul. I didn't look up the text, but in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, the disciples are brought before the Sanhedrin and, and told to stop preaching the gospel. And they said something similar. They said, shouldn't we obey God rather than you? I mean, you even follow him. Like, you're his representatives on this earth, and you're telling us not to preach this gospel, but shouldn't we obey God instead of you? It would seem like that's a given. And that's essentially what they're saying. They look right at the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and say, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. We don't answer to you. And I want you to notice, they didn't have to rationalize for a minute. They didn't have to pray about whether it was God's will that they bow before the statue. They didn't throw it out on social media to say, hey guys, here's the sitch. You know, we're in serious trouble here. What do you all think we should do? By the way, if you're one of those people that asks the community at large about important decisions in your life, the democratic process almost never yields a good result. Amen? 
The mob almost never gives good advice. Haven't you ever seen all those old movies with the pitchforks and the torches? That's mob rule, my friends. Don't ask people who don't know. All right? Don't go out there asking people what you should do when they don't know your walk, when they don't know your future, when they don't know your God or what he has planned for you. They didn't have to do any of that. Obedience was their first response. They knew what they had to do. Obey God, period. You know what? That's the best plan you could ever have for any situation. Just obey God, period. No questions asked. Just do it. Just obey him. Do what he says. And if you don't know what he's saying, if you're having trouble figuring out what his will is, then do something that you absolutely know he told you to do. For instance, if you're in question about what to do, just love your neighbor because that's one of those givens, isn't it? Isn't it? Is there any situation where loving your neighbor is a bad idea? You better say no. Because that's what the book says. Love God with all of your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. No matter what you're facing in life, sometimes we can reduce it down to the stuff we already know. If I'm in trouble, if I don't know what to do, if I don't know how to walk forward, one of the questions I can ask is, what is the best way I can love my neighbor in this situation? And if I do that, I believe I will eventually find the will of God for that specific situation. If you don't know what to do or where to go, do what you know until God tells you different. Just obey him, period. Faith obeys God rather than man. A faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. And they were about to test their faith. The second one is this. Faith believes in spite of what it sees. Coming right out of verse 17. Faith believes in spite of what it sees. This is a little bit similar uh, to last week or maybe it was the week before. I can't remember because I'm getting old. Um, But faith believes in spite of what they're seeing. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace. You see, they didn't stand in the king's face and say, there's no way you're throwing us in that furnace. Now, we would do that, wouldn't we? Well, I believe God for this. You've heard that maybe sometimes. Sometimes we feel like we have the ability to tell God what he has to do for us. And let me tell you something. God is sovereign. He is loving, and he wants the best for you. But he is sovereign, and he does not have to do it the way you want it done. They didn't say to the king, there's no way we're going in the furnace. They looked full ahead, saw the furnace looming, and still had faith. They knew that there was a possibility. In fact, it was a probability that they were going in that furnace that day. And yet in spite of what they saw, they stood their ground. If we are thrown into the blazing service, uh, furnace, <laughs> service, <laughs> blazing, that's a bad, it's a, never mind. <clears throat> the God whom we serve is able, two things, is able to save and will rescue us from your power. I don't know how they had the faith to believe that even if they went in the furnace, they could come out of that because I would be looking at that furnace going, yeah, I don't even like a hot summer day, (laughs) you know? But somehow they believed. They saw what was before them and they had faith anyway. And a lot of times, friends, we get in those situations where the only thing we can see before us is not what we want. It's not what we would choose and it's not what we think God would want us to do. And because it's not what we think should be there, We change our mind or we change our direction and we go another way. Faith believes in spite of what it sees. God is able and he was willing. And that leads us to the third one, which is this. Faith knows that obedience is our responsibility. 
the outcome is really up to God. It's not our job to figure out what, how it's going to end. It's our job to be faithful in the meantime. Verse 18 says this, but even if he doesn't, and there's a great song by um, Mercy Me out there called Even If. And anybody ever heard that song? Even if he don't, my heart is his alone. It's one of my favorite songs to sing in the car when nobody's around. Because I love to try that little falsetto part that he does up there. If you ever see me at a stoplight singing my brains out, it's probably that song. Please don't tell anybody that you saw me doing that. Um, even if he doesn't, we will never bow down and worship you or your idols, and we will never serve them. Even if he doesn't save us, wow, man. Many of us, I think, today would be on board as long as we knew that God's deliverance was going to come. But if we thought it wasn't going to come, how many of us would actually stand in faith in the midst of the fire? Wouldn't we be tempted to, to rationalize it? Wouldn't we be tempted to walk away from it? If, if we thought that the end was certain and that we were going in the furnace, wouldn't we be tempted to start reasoning and thinking about it? Like, for instance, you know, some rationales that could come up. Well, Lord, if they kill me today, who's going to witness to them tomorrow? Right? So God, maybe I should just, you know, bow in form only. You know that my heart is not bowing, but, but my body can maybe just bow and my heart will still be yours because if I die today, who's going to be here to, to, you know, fight the good faith in the future? There's lots of rationales that we could give, but they didn't do that. They saw what was coming and they embraced it. It wasn't easy for them. We think it was easy for them because we know the end of the story. They had no idea how the story was going to end. For all they knew, the story ended with them being burned up and Nebuchadnezzar going and eating supper, right? But we know different. And so it seems easy to us. They had no idea what might happen. So let's talk for a little bit about what did happen. Old Nebuchadnezzar got so angry that the Bible says his face was distorted. I love that terminology. How many of you have gotten so mad your face was distorted? Some of you have seen your parents get that mad, but you don't know what you look like. You need to look at yourselves, because I've seen myself accidentally a few times. Everybody give me your ang so angry your face is distorted face real quick, because I want to see it. You know. Yeah, we caught that on camera. There's one right up there. So awesome. I'm going to use that against all of you now. Just kidding. His face was distorted. He was so angry. Verse 19. They bound up these boys. Now, again, we don't know if they bound just their hands. When I was a kid growing up, the flannel graph, you remember the flannel? They always had them bound from top to bottom. Their legs bound, everything bound, you know, their hands down here at their size. We don't know how they were bound, but it, they made it very clear that these guys were not going to escape. And so they bound them up, and then they had some of the guards throw them into the fire. And interesting Interestingly enough, the fire was so hot, the Bible says, that the guys who threw them in the fire perished. They died because the fire was so hot. And so they got that close to the furnace, they threw them in, and the guards fell over dead because they were so hot. And, and, and so I'm sure that, that when they went into the fire, King Nebuchadnezzar thought, that's, that's over with. That problem is solved. That issue is resolved. Now I can go find myself some more servants, some more counselors, because now I got some positions to fill. And as he's doing that, something very strange happened. Let's pick it up in verse 24. But suddenly, I love it when the scripture says that, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement. How many of you know kings don't jump up, <laughs> right? Have you ever in a movie seen a king get excited and jump up and it wasn't a comedy, right? They just don't do that. They're all pious. They're all, he jumped up 
in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. I got news for you. Even if the answer had been no, they still would have said, yep, you're right, king. It was three. Wasn't it four? It was three, king. Yeah, no, but it was three. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god in the New Living Translation. Some of the other translations say, looks as if he's one of the gods or a son of the gods, something to that effect. And so a lot of people see in that Jesus himself. We don't know for sure, but some believe that Christ himself visited them in the fire, that it's a a kind of a, a precursor of Christ and his presence. We don't know for sure. It could have been an angel, but some being that resembled a God basically showed up in the fire. Listen, I gotta tell you something. To walk with God personally is an incredible thing. I have sought my entire life since the time I was very young to worship God in a way that I feel the presence of God close to me. How many of you would love it if that was the experience every single Sunday morning, in every single song that we sang, in every single sermon that you preach, that literally the heaviness that I talked about last week would fall on us and we would absolutely know that God is here and that he is with us and that we could feel him as close as the person sitting next to us. Wouldn't that be awesome? I have sought that my entire lives and I have been in in thousands of worship services, both leading them and sitting in them. And I got to tell you, there have been some times I felt as close to God as I've ever in my life felt. I felt the heaviness of God come upon me. And it's an amazing thing. But there is no sense of the presence of God. You will never know the presence of God better than when he is with you in the fire. You don't see the the significance of that, I can tell. Let, Let me tell you something. In America, we have an epidemic of shallow and uninspired faith. We think that the best way to experience God's presence is to walk into the most beautiful church we can find, the church that has the most money that we can find, the church that has the best coffee, or skinny boy decaf latte no foam, whatever is your preference. And we like to worship in a comfortable chair in the air conditioning with a latte in one hand and the other hand is for raising. And we believe that's where God will meet us. I want to share with you that that is not where God usually meets me. Where I have met him the most and felt his presence the deepest is in those moments like I described to you in Elwood, Indiana, where I'm on my knees at the altar saying, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't do this anymore. God, I'm in the middle of the fire. I shouldn't be, and I'd like to know why. (laughs) Right? You ever prayed a prayer like that? Here's the thing. God doesn't strike you dead when you do that. He shows up and he walks with you through the fire. So I'm not against Sunday morning and I'm sure not against air conditioning and padded pews because last night I sat on a folding chair at Warner Camp. I'm still recovering. But let me tell you something. It is not in your comfort and ease that God will most often make his presence known. It's when your heart is broken 
that you most often feel him walking with you. And if you haven't experienced that in your life, let me warn you that it's coming. Because as a a pastor that I follow and that I listen to often says, you're either coming out of a time of turbulence and trouble or you're in a time of turbulence or trouble or you're about to be in a time of turbulence and trouble. That's pretty much your life. It's going to happen. And in those times of trouble, that is when God shows up the most. And so worship with all of your might and give God everything you've got every time you come in here and his presence may fall. But let me tell you something. If you really want to get real with him and feel him with you, make sure that in the lowest points of your life you walk with him because he will walk with you. We think God is closest when things are good, but I'm telling you, it's not the case. Real relationship with God has to be honest. And it's in those times of our down times, our, our, our hard times, our troubled times, that we finally get honest with God and with each other, and we share that. And you know what? A lot of times in worship, we do the opposite of that. You know, we, we get in our cars, and we're on our way to the church, and everything's going wrong, and we complain to our spouse about this, and we complain to our kids about that, and we holler at them to sit down and be quiet and all that stuff, and, and we're angry, and you know, this is the stereotype. And then we get out at the front door of the church, we walk in, and the greeter says, how you doing? And we say, fine. I got news for you. It's okay to say, I'm not fine <laughs> today. I'm not fine. That's what Hendrick's trying to tell us. He's not fine. Mimi is not giving him what he wants. And you know what? There are days I walk in and I'm like, I'm not fine. I'm not okay. And it's okay to say that to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's really okay to say that to God. And when we get honest, then we start to build relationship with each other and with God. Listen, Tori and I didn't have our first fight until we'd been married almost a year. That's how passive we both were. We were trying to please each other so hard that we didn't literally have a fight. We'd been together three years before we got married. Didn't have a fight till after we were married. But you know what? It was a big one. And here's the thing. I don't remember what it was about. I'm just going to go ahead and go out on a limb. Probably my fault. Right? Amen? Just saying. But I remember the hurt that I felt. And I remember the things that that woman said to me that I never thought she would say. And I'm sure she remembers some of the things that I wish I hadn't said that I never thought I would say. And she stomped out of that trailer. We lived in a single wide trailer in Florida. We were riding high, baby. And she went trumping down the road, and I sat there angry, disgusted, not knowing what to do, because I knew it was my fault, probably. Sometimes I haven't even known what I did, but, you know, that time I probably did. And then I realized, oh my gosh, she just walked out on Highway 27 South in central Florida, which is one of the chief drug tra trafficking highways in the world. I mean, that's like the most dangerous highway in the United States or something. And so I went after and I looked for her. I don't remember whether I found her or not, but I do know this, that from that moment forward, there was an honesty in our relationship that we never had before. And the fights that followed contained a whole lot more truth and honesty than they did jabs and argument. You see, it's not until the down times that you really get honest. 
I didn't intend to preach on that, sorry. As we continue reading, verse 28, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command. He's talking about himself. They defied my command. He should have said my there, don't you think? He's in denial. They, they denied the king's demand. And we're willing to die rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make this decree, if any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. What God? That's right. He found out, didn't he? He asked the question, what God? will be able to deliver you from my punishment. And he found out there is no other God who could rescue from a time such as this. What God? Our God. He could rescue them. Faith obeys rather God rather than man. I can't even read my own notes. Faith believes in spite of what it sees. Faith knows that obedience is our responsibility. The outcome is up to God. A faith that is tested is a faith that can be trusted. I want to invite you right now just to bow your heads for a moment. We're actually going to close with a song today and the worship team is going to start coming. But for those of you that are still sitting in the pew, I want to just invite you to um, bow your heads where you are and close your eyes with me for a moment. And I want you to just take a few moments with God alone. I know you're in a room filled with people. And honestly, the ones who really need this are probably already there. (laughs) But I just want to invite you to take a moment and talk to God. And say to Him maybe the things that have gone unsaid. Maybe you're going through the fire. Maybe you are experiencing something like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that you never thought in a million years you would experience. After all, they were high in the king's court. They had made it. They had arrived. And all of a sudden their lives and their death was staring them in the face. If you're going through an experience like that or even close to that or maybe just a a simple struggle that you just can't seem to get over, I want to invite you right now just to be honest with God about it. But to resolve in your heart to do what they did. To stand firm in the faith. To stand firm in the fire. To have faith when the outcome looks bleak, to have faith even though you don't know what God's going to do. Because no matter what you go through, I believe God will walk through it with you and there will always be another in the fire. Take just a moment and tell God what you need to tell Him and invite Him into that problem, that struggle that you might be going through right now.